So in everything we've dealt with thus far in this series, we have assumed that the Bible is trustworthy, that it's a reliable way of making sense of our lives and of the world we live in. Christians bank their own lives on this fact, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that 2,000 years ago He lived a real life here on earth, And His life, His miracles, His teachings, His death, and His resurrection, all of these were for all one reason. To heal you and me of all our brokenness. To deliver us from our demons, to set us free from our bad habits, to forgive us of our sins, and deliver our world from death, from pain and suffering. Everything Jesus did was to restore humanity and His good creation. This was why He existed. This is what He set in motion and will one day finalize. Christianity rises and falls on this. But we live in a world where the very source for this knowledge is questioned at nearly every level. On the one hand, the Bible is questioned for its its historical reliability. Can we really know that Jesus did the things the Gospels tell us? Thomas Jefferson, in some ways a hero in these parts, right? He was a child of the cultural movement known as the Enlightenment. And he decided that miracles could not happen. So when he came to the Bible, he assumed Jesus' miraculous deeds were impossible. And in his mind, and the mind of lots of others who are children of the Enlightenment, Jesus was primarily a teacher of morality. And there are lots of other versions of this argument. But at the end of the day, they all assume the Bible is not historically trustworthy. Then on the other hand, the Bible is also questioned for its regressive views on cultural issues. Its views on sex and marriage are only one hot-button example in our current society. The Bible, according to a large portion of our context in the Western world, is outdated. It is incapable of speaking in a relevant way to a teenager living in 2018, nearly 2,000 years after its recorded events. What I want to do this morning is look at two ways... two ways in which the Bible is reliable. The train is reliable too, isn't it? Nearly every Sunday. First, the Bible is reliable as history. This is what we'll look at first. But second, the Bible is also reliable for transforming us, for making us the people we are made to be. Both of these ways of looking at it are essential. Now first, let's look at how the Bible is reliable as history. And we could spend all morning here, we could spend all week here, and more. But today we're only going to take a couple of the arguments that challenge the Bible's historical value. And because the center of the Bible is the story of Jesus, because Christianity does rise and fall on whether or not Jesus really did say and do what the four Gospels tell us He said and did, Because of this, we're going to focus on the Gospels. Can we trust them? 
And the way we can ask this question is by looking at two of the strongest arguments that are leveled against them. So one argument is that the Gospels were written too late, too long after the events they record for them to be factual. Instead, as this argument goes, they are closer to legend. They retain small bits of historical reality, but they've been expanded and enhanced at best with the intent to entertain, but at worst with the intent to deceive. Now, this is the essence of the argument, that the Gospels are written too late to be factual. But there are often other concerns that are sort of added on to this argument. For instance, there is a concern among some that the church hierarchy of the day selected the four Gospels in our Bibles, what are called the canonical Gospels, while they suppressed others. So you may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Peter, or the Gospel of of Mary. The belief goes that church leaders suppressed these Gospels and favored the canonical Gospels in order to maintain their power and their authority. They couldn't have alternative views of Jesus floating around, suggesting that they were wrong, so they squashed them. Now, books like the Da Vinci Code, uh, which has, of course, been produced into a movie, have only amplified this possibility in the public imagination, leading many to conclude there very well could be a side of Jesus that we don't know about, that will one day come out. Now, this came to surface again several years ago. Some of you might have seen this in the major news networks. A Harvard professor announced the discovery of a new piece of papyrus, the ancient paper, on which was a reference to Jesus' wife. Do you remember this? Initially, it was said that the fragment was a copy from an earlier text that dated back to A.D. 150. Now, if that was the case, it was relatively close to the Gospels that are in our Bibles. But after more in-depth study, this fragment is now considered a forgery. Actually, it was possibly written on ancient paper as recently as the late 1990s. Now... I don't mean to say that all the competing views of Jesus are this outlandish. There's genuine concern that the events described in the Gospels are legendary or at least embellished. And behind this is a powerful institution that wants to preserve its place. So while I was in seminary, I worked valet parking in the French Quarter. And I, one of my coworkers having a conversation, of course, you know, seminary students are always someone that people want to attack, usually. And uh, he said, you just can't trust the Bible. The Catholic Church had too much influence over the formation of it. You can't trust it. But the truth is, there really are good reasons for us to believe that the Gospels are very reliable that they record history, not legend, and that the Gospels in our Bibles were chosen not because of some power play, but because they are the most trustworthy account of the life of Jesus. So take, for instance, the timeline of when our Gospels were written. At the very most, 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And then there are Paul's letters, which record the same historical events as the Gospels that Jesus did many miraculous deeds, that Jesus died and rose from the dead. 
These letters were written even earlier, just 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death. And, and think about what this means. It means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within the lifetimes of hundreds of people who were present at the events of His ministry. The Gospel author Luke claims he got his account of Jesus' life directly from eyewitnesses who were still alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul refers to a body of 500 witnesses who saw the Christ, the risen Christ, at once. All at once. Some of them were still alive as Paul was writing. And you can't write something like this in a document that's designed for public reading, which this is what 1 Corinthians was designed for, is public reading, unless there really were surviving witnesses whose testimony agreed and who would confirm what he was saying. When you read the Gospels closely, you can also see that the writers are intent on emphasizing the eyewitness testimony they've received. For instance they often mention the names of very brief and seemingly inconsequential characters. Like the person who carried Jesus' cross, Simon of Cyrene. Not only do we learn his name, but also the names of his children, Alexander and Rufus. Why are we receiving the names of children of this character? By including their names, the Gospel writers are naming their character witnesses. They're saying, these people are still around. You can ask them if you like. At the same time, we have no competing evidence from the same time period. No alternative portraits of Jesus. So of the Gospels I mentioned earlier, what are typically called the Gnostic Gospels, the most famous of them is the Gospel of Thomas. And it looks to be at least 60 years older than all the Gospels found in our Bibles. But even more important than its age, it presents an entirely different picture of Jesus than that of the Gospels in our Bibles. Jesus becomes more of a philosopher who gives religious secrets to a select few rather than a Savior who is fulfilling long-held promises, who is then going to send his followers to share this message in the world. It is an entirely different picture of Jesus. So the argument that the Gospels were written too late to be factual, or that the church has hidden the real Jesus in favor of their own, these simply are not the case. Instead, all the evidence suggests that the Gospels were written within living memory of the events they recount, and they're based on the testimony of eyewitnesses, peoples whose lives were changed by the events they observed. So I want you to think for a moment. Can you imagine yourself in the shoes of someone like Simon of Cyrene? You're standing by when Christ comes carrying His cross, and you see Jesus fall under the weight of it. And then you are picked out from the crowd by the Romans and told, carry it the rest of the way. Can you imagine how you would have shared this experience with your children and with a host of others? 
This is what we're dealing with in the Gospels. The lived experience of those who knew Jesus, who came to love Him, and they want us to know and love Him too. But there's one other argument we should address when it comes to the Gospel's historical reliability. And this is that the manuscripts on which the Gospels have been passed down to us, that they were translated, that were used to translate our own English Bibles. The argument is that these manuscripts were not, are not reliable. And, and we should always be up front in saying that we do not have the original manuscripts of the Gospels. These have long become crumbled into dust. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because think about what would have happened to these manuscripts. They would have become worn out from overuse, from the church reading them over and over and over again. Slowly they broke down, a piece gone here and there, just like what happens in some of our Bibles when they're used over and over again. Now, does not having these original manuscripts, does this mean we can't trust what we have? That's the question. This is what an author like Bart Ehrman would say. Ehrman is possibly the most popular critic of the reliability of the New Testament. And what's sad about Ehrman is he grew up a Christian, but he abandoned his faith while studying the New Testament as a Ph.D. student at Harvard. Harvard or Princeton, excuse me. And now he teaches at UNC Chapel Hill, and he's written a lot of books. One of them is titled Misquoting Jesus in which he's basically saying that our current manuscripts are not old enough or accurate enough for us to rely on them for what Jesus said. Now, what do Christians say to this? Uh, you know, with all due respect to Dr. Ehrman, and this isn't the case with everything he says, but he's simply wrong here. He builds a straw man so that he can destroy it, and then he overplays the problems. And here's what I mean. The New Testament is the best attested book in ancient history, both in terms of the number of manuscripts and the nearness of those manuscripts to the date of their original. This is not even debated. In fact, there's no other ancient work that's so available in so many copies and languages, and yet all the various versions agree in their content. So you could take New Testament manuscripts in Greek, and then you can take one in Coptic, the Egyptian language, and these would be essentially the same, even though they were produced in entirely different places. It's amazing. The Gospels and New Testament books are also quoted by the early church fathers nearly word for word as we have them. And the errors that we do find, which we do find some, they are typically the minute mistakes of copyists who work these long hours hunched over in low light over their manuscripts, sometimes confusing one line on a page for another. And because we have so many manuscripts, around 24,000, those mistakes can typically be dealt with very easily. If one were judging Christianity by the manuscripts of the Bible alone, the perspective you should come away with should not be doubt and skepticism. Instead, it should be a sense of awe and devotion. Here's why. 
Because for millennia, the faithful have meticulously copied and translated the words of Holy Scripture, even at the risk and in some cases the cost of their own lives. And they did this in order to preserve and pass on its life-giving words for another generation or possibly for another people group who'd not yet heard of the God who became a man. The proper reaction to this is not a modern cynicism. Instead, it should be worship and gratitude. Now, there's a lot more we could say about the Bible's historical reliability. And if this is something you struggle with, please, let, let's talk. I'd love to listen. And I'd, I'd love to be challenged to have any kind of conversation. But there is something else we need to consider. You see, you don't become a Christian and a follower of Jesus merely by considering evidence. You, you don't. You don't become a Christian by believing facts about the Bible. For a long time, this is how the church has treated the Scriptures, as if they are this depository, a record of facts, truths, and our job is simply to hold up the Bible and say, the Bible says it, it's true, it's done with. We don't need to talk about it anymore. That's not how God intends for us to use the Bible. So here's our last point. The Bible is reliable for transforming us for making us the people that we are made to be. You see, the Bible is unique from all other holy books. The Quran of Islam, the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, the sayings of Buddha in the Tripitaka. It's unique in that the Bible provides this overarching storyline for the entire history of our world. And it points us towards God's goal for the creation. Here's the best part that makes the Bible unique. In it, God summons us as characters who play a part in the work that God is doing to make the world new. You see, in these other pieces of uh, these holy books, we, we are called to become basically just moral people. We're called to follow commands. But in the Bible, we are called to be characters who bring God's love into the world. This is different. We are become a foretaste of the new creation itself. So in the passage Travis read to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells us that Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, the Scriptures themselves carry the very energy and breath of God so that through them, God can do the thing to you that He did to those dry bones in that valley with Ezekiel. He can put new flesh on you. He can breathe new energy into you and make you a new type of person through His Word, through the Bible. Now listen again to what Paul says the Scriptures are for. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The purpose of the Scriptures is to equip you to do the work that God has given you to do. 
You and I are a part of the ongoing work God is doing in the world through His Son Jesus, through the redeeming work of Jesus. God does not have us here in standstill, just waiting until He returns, but He's actually given us jobs to do. You and your vocation, your family life, your hobbies, you are part of the way God is bringing His love, His mercy to the world. You are part of the way He's bringing His justice. He's saying no to what's evil and He's affirming what's good. He does this through you. But the way God trains us and equips us for this work is through the Bible. There's a sense in which every one of us, regardless of our work, is dependent on God and His voice in Scripture to do our work well. To be a great teacher, to run your own business, to parent your children, to use your retirement well, whatever it may be. The Bible is breathed out by God so that it can fashion and form us to do His work in the world. This is what Paul is saying. Now, how does this happen? How does the Bible do this? I'm going to give you two ways and we'll be done. First, the Bible transforms us in the church. The Bible transforms us in the church. Through the ages, in every place, in every generation, God has given the Scriptures to the church. They are our authority. And here, in the community of faith, they're to be read and taught through the power of God's Spirit as our rule of life together. And because we're a community, we're not merely individuals. The Scriptures aren't subject to our individual interpretation. They're not subject to our own passing whims and fancy. So if your interpretation of Scripture happens to differ from the majority of the body of Christ and the tradition of the church, the most likely case is you're wrong. Most likely case. God's assurance to you is that if you commit yourself to a community of faith where the Scriptures are read and authoritatively taught in the Spirit, if you will submit yourself to such a community, you can trust that the Bible will transform you. And it will make you into the person that you're made to be. God will equip you as His instrument to bring more of His love into the world. So first... The Bible transforms us in the church. But then second, the Bible transforms us through personal devotion. Look, we all know how difficult it is to make Bible reading a part of our daily living. Life is unbelievably busy, and on top of this, the Bible is terribly complex. We read a few sentences in Isaiah or Romans, and we're so confused. We need hours of commentary study, and we still can't quite make out what it means. How can we do this? I know that the last thing a lot of us need is more guilt here. But what we do desperately need is a way. A way of making Scripture a part of our daily lives. Jesus called Scripture the bread of life. And He said we cannot live by regular bread alone. You need this bread to live. We need the life-giving words of God. But we we, we don't also... 
only have the testimony of Jesus, we also have the testimony of lives uh, like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe. Both of these men produced precursors to the King James Bible. You see, the Bible wasn't in the vernacular, the language of the people at the time. And so these men essentially gave their lives so that they could put the Bible within the hands of every living person. They believed God would use the Bible alone and the power of His Spirit to transform individuals and to transform the whole society. But at the time, the weight of the church was against them. So Tyndale would be strangled and burned at the stake. And Wycliffe's body was removed from his grave and burned. But time has proved them right. Their work that was fueled by a passion for God and for Scripture has changed the course of history. What do we do with lives like this? Who... who, who sacrificed themselves so that we could have the Bible. We have to trust that if we make the Bible a part of our daily living, if we seek it for daily bread from God, listen to His voice in it, the Bible will fuel us and it will transform us too. You know, Scripture, just like the Eucharist table, where we're going to come in a few minutes, is a thin place. It's a place where heaven and earth, our dimension and God's dimension, overlap. It's a place where in the power of God's Spirit, we encounter Him. We literally hear Him speaking when we read Scripture. And when we do this, we're continually changed. You don't have to come to the Bible for understanding. What you have to come to to it with is a spirit of openness to listen. When we do this, we will be continually remade and continually sent back into God's world with His love and His power. We can rely on the Bible for this. We can rely on it. We can trust God to transform us through it and to help us do His work in the world through it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You've spoken to us. That You've spoken to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You've given us Your Word. Thank You that we can have confidence that Your Word is true and Your Word is good. You please help us to trust it and to give ourselves to it. Help us to overcome the shame and also the the sense of being overwhelmed by it. And help us to hear Your voice in it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.